On our way here this morning, uh, Kay was asking, as she usually does, well, so how did it go this morning, your preparation and everything? And I said, it was good. I had really, really uh, sweet meditation. Um, and then I added, I said, I mean, I don't know if it's my best sermon. She said, but it's your last one. <laughs> so I present that to you. I don't know if this is my best one, but it is my last one, right? <clears throat> um, so I, I could go on for 30 minutes or more of what you all have meant to us, how incredibly supportive and kind and generous, uh, hospitable, patient, um, it has been just an amazing 17 years, and it's because of, of your love and your support. Um, all that you've done for both of us all these many years, I could never, ever thank you enough. I will continue to thank God till the day I die uh, for the amazing opportunity, the humbling uh, honor of getting to be uh, your senior pastor these uh, many years. Um, so... <clears throat> Not cry. Um, all right. So you'll notice in our uh, reading this morning that in addition to what you find on page 9 of Romans 8, 28 through 39, we'll be dealing with verses 35 through 39, but I wanted to remind you of the context. But I've also included on page 8 Romans 5 because this uh, is one section in Paul. I just wanted to call that to your mind, that where he began in chapter 5, he ends in chapter 8. For instance, you see in the first verse, our Lord Jesus Christ, you see in verse 39, nothing will separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. Also, you will find that uh, the terms uh, tribulation, the term tribulation, it's suffering in Romans 5, but it's a tribulation in Romans 8, that the only two occurrences in these uh, four chapters are at the beginning and the end to show that he is dealing with how we manage our suffering, what God does in the midst of, of suffering. Both he begins with hope and he ends with hope, even though at the end doesn't actually have the word hope, but it's just laced with hope. And you'll see in both places, the hope is rooted in the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have hope and expectation because we have been so fiercely, wonderfully loved in Christ. Uh, that's the theme of these six chapters. And he begins there and will end there in Romans 8. So let's begin then, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, that final glory, which is also mentioned at the end in chapter 8. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And for, for while we were still weak at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he ends this glorious section in these verses, beginning with verse 28. And we know that for, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, you've given us this word. You've given us the Holy Spirit. We know that you intend to enrich us by this word. Oh, Lord, take faltering, weak lips, and Lord, use whatever is said um, that conforms to your word to be planted in our hearts. Uh, Lord, grant us deeper, fuller, richer faith. Uh, Lord, lives that are governed by your love, lives that issue in our love for one another and for a lost world. Oh, bless us, oh Lord, by your spirit. Amen. So again, a very complicated outline uh, this morning. Uh, question and answer and, and reason. So we start, we jump right in to verse uh, 35 with uh, the, the first question. The, the question which is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the way he asks it in verse 39, who, will, what, who or what will be able to separate us, right? And uh, indicates that any of these things threaten to separate us from God's love, and then some have that as their specific goal, right? None of them will be able to, even though they might try. And you'll notice that as he's just said that Christ intercedes for us in heaven, 
He also sustains his people on earth. He is present with his people on earth. His fierce love is a sovereign power that protects his people. He died for them. You think he's going to lose them? His love is the love of the creator. So anything that happens within creation means nothing in the face of the creator's love. Creator versus creature. (laughs) Creator's love versus anything creation can muster. No, there's not even a contest. All of creation is just a speck to be flicked off by God. And this Christ has gone before us. He will bring us through to where he is, not only into heaven, but into the new creation, which his resurrection has already opened up. So it is because of that love, that sovereign love, that we are protected. And as we saw, he begins with that love in chapter 5. He ends with that love even here. And motives are important. This whole section sets before us the love of Christ three times. The love of God that is in Christ. That is our motive. That's our basis for hope. And motives are critical. Tumbleweed, another of my favorite comics. I haven't quoted much. There's a great tumbleweeds where, and if you've ever seen it, it's drawn so well. Little uh, pathetic little cowboy, and he's sitting on a horse that dips down in the middle, and his feet are almost dragging the ground, you know, as he walks. Just funny to see him, this cowboy on his mighty steed. (laughs) So he comes to the first sign, and it says, Grizzly bear country ahead. He comes to the second sign. It says, do not pet the bears. He comes to the third sign that says, because a patronizing attitude could demoralize them. (laughs) Right? Don't pet the bears, but not because of that, right? (laughs) Not a patronizing attitude. It's like the two Mormon missionaries that visited me in my uh, house I grew up in uh, while I was in college, and they couldn't believe, as I confessed to them, my conviction that because God has loved me in Christ Jesus, I have the hope of eternal life, and I have a sure hope. And these two Mormons were in their missionary two years as part as they expressed it, not in these words, of the resume they were building to one day hand to God in hopes that possibly they might go to heaven. That's the way they're living their whole life. And when they heard me say, well, I'm already convinced I'm going to heaven because I'm assured of the love of God in Christ, and that's my hope. And they said, why do you obey him then? No Fathom. They had they could not fathom what held me to him if it weren't for the stark raving fear that you might go to hell. So you better keep doing good your whole life, and maybe it'll be enough in that last day. That's basically how I grew up until I was converted. We hope 
because of his love. We hope because of the favor that we have now in Christ Jesus, that he intercedes for us, that God's love began in eternity as he set his love upon us. And nothing will shake that eternal love. That's what we hope in by his grace. And then he lists all of these things that might separate us, ending with the last final sword itself, which may anticipated his own loss uh, by death uh, at the sword. And then he quotes Psalm 44 here. And some actually have said that it's kind of an interruption, which is uh, not the case at all. He's quoting a passage in the Old Testament, in Psalm 44, in which the psalmist complains and confesses, we have been faithful to you, and yet we suffer. Because normally in the Old Testament, you know, things were straight because it was kind of physically oriented, and if you obey, good things are going to happen to you. But he said, we've been faithful. But notice it says, for your sake. It's because we belong to you and we've been faithful to you. It's because of our faithfulness to you that we suffer. And that's where Christians found themselves. And certainly, though the name of Christianity, through the name of Christianity, under that name, Christians have done terrible things through the centuries. And we don't justify any of those things. But another critical aspect of Christianity is our history of seeking to live out and proclaim the love of Christ and suffering for it. Christians have suffered because of their very loyalty to Christ. They encounter dangers as a part of their bearing witness for Christ. And so it says... All day long, we're being killed, uh, literally deathanized. There's the word for death, and it's a verb, uh, put to death, or NIV is helpful when it says, we face death. And Paul gives the inner workings of that death in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we who are living for Christ are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. It's because we belong to him. It's because we're confessing him. But it's so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So there's our process. That's what he invites you to. (laughs) Die for me and manifest me. What an invitation. Die for me and manifest me in your life. Who, who Who would go and do that? Those who've seen his beauty those who've come to know his love and it counts more precious than anything else in life. And Jesus assures his disciples, look, they hated, this is in John 15, they hated me before they hated you. And if you still belong to them, you're still a part of the world, they wouldn't hate you. It's because I've called you out of the world to belong to me. That's why they hate you. And remember, you're not above me. The master was persecuted. You're going to be persecuted. What would you expect? 
if you leave the world that persecuted Christ to belong to Christ, what's going to happen? And yet we do it. Yet we do it. Because serving him, knowing him, enjoying his love and the prospect of his eternal love is more precious than life itself. That's the treasure of belonging to Christ. And we'll talk more about that. But then he answers, no. And any of these things separate us. No. And it's a strong word. So far from its being possible that this would happen, right? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So far are these from separating us, we're more than conquerors. One Greek lexicon has this for that word, winning a most glorious victory. That's, what's, that's what we're involved in, in the midst of suffering, in all these things, not avoiding these things, not escaping these things, but in the midst of these things. We are winning a most glorious victory. One translation says, an overwhelming victory is ours. Another one says, a sweeping victory. Another, triumphantly victorious. And the word that Paul has here, it's a, a rare word, the only time, excuse me, the only time it occurs in the whole Bible. And it has that uh, prefix, hyper. Right? So, hyper-conquerors. In fact, one translation has super-conquerors. <laughs> um, conquerors on steroids. That's what we are in the midst of suffering. So, we're familiar with the hyper-word, right? Hyper-tension, hyper-ventilate, hyper-active, or my favorite, hyper-space. And you have to be careful, remember, in the first Star Wars, which is, is really number four, but the first one, Han, Han Solo reminds Luke, traveling through hyperspace ain't like Dustin Crops, boy. Without precise calculations, we could fly right through a star or bounce too close to a supernova, and that would end your trip real quick, wouldn't it? <laughs> Best comment ever on something hyper, right? <laughs> hyperspace. <laughs> But you see, it's because of his love that we are more than conquerors. It's because of his powerful love that died for us, that attends us, that keeps us. Because we cannot keep ourselves. But his keeping of us makes us hyper-conquerors. It's the very love of God in Christ. It is God's love manifested in the very person of Christ. And when he says more than conquerors, that seems to reflect what he says in verse 28 that all things work together for good. You see, it's not it's not just that we escape. No, these things work for our good. <laughs> more than conquerors, we escape ahead of where we were. Our trials are like these moving walkways in the airport. Don't you love those, right? 
And we always pick them because you're going much faster than you could. And in trials, you're more than conquerors. Whatever evil may be doing to try to drive you away from God in his grace, you become more than conquerors and you just keep speeding ahead by his grace. Because nothing can stop. We're not holding a position in tribulation. It's a time of advancement, not retreat, not holding, but moving forward. It's defense and then attack. Uh, you know, I was reviewing a particular uh, boxer's history, and, and some of these will show, you know, a series of knockouts. And this particular boxer was a, a fantastic counterpuncher. And so many times, the other boxer just so confident that he's going to put him out, leaves himself open, and he's knocked out in the process. It's an amazing thing to see that just, you know, you can almost see in his, I've got him now, boom, you're out. You know, just shocking ending to what he thought. And the enemies of God have a constant series of shocking endings. And they can't stop it. <laughs> they can't stop it from happening. Because Christ's love makes his people more than conquerors. They seek to ruin us. But they become the scene of the overwhelming victory which we are winning through Christ. You see one wonderful example of this uh, when Paul is describing uh, the afflictions of the Corinthians, I mean of the uh, Macedonians, he's explaining it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, 8, and he's explaining the conditions under which they gave for the poor people in Jerusalem. And he says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Extreme affliction and poverty? And you, I would call that overwhelming victory that in that matrix they joyfully gave to those poor believers in Jerusalem. And that's what God is able to do for each one of you. Each one of you. So our suffering is not seen ever as a rejection from Christ, but it's our identification with Christ. It's a symbol of God's favor and, and our future inheritance. And the irony is that your suffering at the hands of the world demonstrates that it is you that will inherit the earth, not those who are trying to remove you from the earth. That's the great irony that runs through all suffering. So Paul can say, uh, speaking of, well, I will speak of a wasp later, but <clears throat> that one just came by. Um, a little preview of things to come. Um, <clears throat> Where Paul says toward the end of 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary, uh, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal 
weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's a glorious victory, right? Where your suffering is issuing in an eternal weight of glory. And the irony is that beneath the cross, that place of humility and trust and brokenness, beneath the cross is the only position of any true conqueror in the world. The only true conquerors in the world are those that are at the foot of the cross of Christ. The meek shall inherit the earth. And finally then, a question, answer in verse 37, and then his reason in verses 38, 39. He says, I'm sure, this is Paul's authoritative judgment uh, on the matter. And he lists ten powers, which indicates completeness. All the powers there can be, any power anywhere, any and all, nothing left out, can anything, nothing can, nothing will. He mentions death first, probably because of verse 36, because He's just said we're being put to death all the day long. So let's speak first of death, death and life, because that surely would do it. Uh, Every conceivable condition of mankind is what is intended here. And then he mentions angels and rulers, and no doubt he's referring to uh, evil angels here because the good angels are on our side, right? They're ministering spirits, as the writer of Hebrews uh, tells us, who are uh, sent out for our sake. And then you should pull into uh, the rulers and angels the word toward the end of that verse, the, at the end, powers as well. Uh, These are all the terrible assemblies around Satan, uh, his workforce, right? And the word power and ruler is usually attached to another word, authority, and you'll find it in Ephesians 1, that Jesus is now exalted above all real authority and power in the universe. And then uh, that's uh, chapter 1, verse 21. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, Looking to the future, he will subject, he will destroy all authority and power and rule in the earth. Same three words. So he is over all of these now, exalted above them all, controlling everything, and he will finally destroy them. No, they are not going to be able to stop his work in your life. They will not separate us from him. He has already decisively defeated them. And some would say that powers is misplaced here, like just an afterthought. But I think it's purposeful because look where it lands. Things present nor things to come, and then after height nor depth. So looking at all of time, no matter where you are, when you are, that's what those two passages, present to, uh, things to come, height nor depth. You're thinking temporally or spatially throughout the whole creation, whenever things, anything is anywhere, the powers will not be able to separate them. Those powers that seem to control everything, they will not separate you out. 
And when you're considering uh, powers and rule and, and evil angels, their greatest evil work was the crucifixion of Christ, their ultimate attempt to act as gods and lords of creation to put him to death. But even then, they only acted as servants of the sovereign God. And in fact, they were ruined by the very cross they erected for him. That's, that's how, what a joke it is, so to speak, that anything would try to go against God. God has now acted to redeem his people, to bring them into his everlasting favor and blessing. These evil forces are powerless to take it from them. They can do nothing. They're too late. We're united to Christ. There's nothing they can do to hurt them, even if they kill them. Even if we are killed, we are more than conquerors. And it's evidenced by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, don't you know we will judge the angels? He means the evil angels. Will the evil angels and forces and powers separate you? You are their judge one day in Christ. You will participate in the lordship of Christ's judgment. They're not going to separate you. They can do nothing to stop God's grace. We are conquerors even if we're physically put to death. So these two pairs, this present and things to come or height or depth, are listed in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 3, where Paul is telling the Corinthians, all things are yours. Things present, things in the future, life, death, same two pair. So you see, there Paul is saying, they cannot separate you and widening, you know, stretching out to take in 1 Corinthians. You own these things through your union with Christ. You already share in Christ's universal lordship and ownership of these things. Nothing can hinder your ultimate and final share of what Christ has won for you. You're an heir. And nothing will stop your inheritance. And then finally, I'm sorry, I'm having such trouble with this. Must be stress. Um, <laughs> he says, anything else in all creation. So if, I, if I haven't covered the basis, let's just say it. Anything else in creation. Plus, that relativizes all of these things. Again, you've got creator versus creation, right? You've got creator who sustains everything in the creation. You have creation that can't even exist except by the creator. And you think anything in creation is going to stop the creator? Mm, probably not. No, probably not. Nothing in creation. And some people like to inject here, yeah, but it doesn't say 
about us, we could separate ourselves. Almost like, let's just undermine the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, oh, shoot, you're right. I hadn't even thought about that. Here's Paul. Ah, what was I thinking? Yeah, that just messes up the whole argument. Forget what I just wrote, you know, whatever. You see, all of these things are the reasons why a believer might abandon his or her faith. Don't you see? And he will not allow those things to cause a true believer to abandon his or her faith. He will not. They will not. Because he is keeping them in his love. His love is what keeps them. And his love enables them to trust and cling to him. They live for him in his love, and they suffer the loss of everything for his love. What it means to them, how precious it is, it is to them, what it brings in store for them in the final day. Nothing can break them loose because he will not let them go, and that means they will not let go. They will not stop entrusting themselves to his gracious hand. As Paul says, we are governed, controlled. By the love of Christ. That's his whole life. And needless to say, this is the death blow to the health and wealth gospel, right? <clears throat> For Paul to say, as he does in Philippians 3, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's my treasure. I'm not looking for more and more stuff. I've counted it all as loss if I can just have Christ. I love how he puts it as he's listing these terrible sufferings in 2 Corinthians 6. And he ends up saying, we're poor as believers and as ministers, but we're making many rich. And then he says, we're ha we have nothing, yet we possess everything. That's our view. I may have nothing. I may be in prison. I have nothing. I have everything in Christ. So this love, this revelation of his love is the, the why we do everything that we do. God's love is only known through Jesus Christ. It is supremely made known in Christ. There is no other God but the one who has made himself known in the love of Christ. And it is only, as, as Ryan said, only in relationship to this Christ that you can know the love of God. That's what redirects our whole lives and redefines everything that we do for him. Uh, all of history for us is determined by the love of God in Christ. And there's no doubt about that love as this passage, Romans 8, 28 through 39, just hammers it and hammers it and hammers it. Unlike a card I gave to Kay <clears throat> several years ago, and it, it begins this way. Sometimes when you're asleep, I stare at you for a minute and think about how sexy you are and how lucky I am and how much I love you, right? Then you open it up and it says, 
and I never even consider writing on you with a sharpie. <laughs> Which is meant to make her go to bed that night, you know, just like <laughs> one eye open. Is he going to make me with a sharpie? <laughs> right? Like in the very statement of your love, I'm going to create some doubt, you know, that it's really that way. That's not what it is from God, is it? I loved you before time. I loved you in giving my son. He intercedes for you. I've justified you. Nothing will separate you from me. My goal is that you will be one day made like my own son and glorified with him. And nothing will stop what I've predestined to happen. You don't have to doubt my love in any way. Our rebellion, see, against God just ruined us. Just look what we do to each other, mankind. You know, war and murder and assault and theft and adultery and sexual abuse and hatred and prejudice and slander and anger and pride and lust. We're just riddled with evil toward one another. Why? Because we abandon the God of love. And look what we've become to each other. Sin just kills us. It redirects us to live for ourselves, to turn away from God, to reject his love and reject his lordship, to make up other gods and other goals and passions instead of him, which all ruin us and land us in everlasting judgment and sin. And years ago, I gave this illustration. I'll just give it in brief without the technical names, which I can't pronounce. I can't pronounce anyway. <clears throat> but there are a series of parasitic wasps, and they work in different ways. And this one wasp, as you probably have heard, finds this particular spider at a particular stage in its life, and he, she lays her eggs in the spider. The eggs hatch, form into tiny larvae, which begin to control the spider. So instead of, over time... More and more hormones control the spider. So instead of her building a web to catch prey, at some point she constructs a very different web with a strong structure, stronger structure than usual, comes to the middle, spins her web around her to form the cocoon where the spider larva will kill her and eat her and form a larva pupa itself and come out as an adult wasp one day, usually a female, to do it again, <laughs> to go and find another spider. That's what sin does to you and me. It takes over our lives. And instead of our spreading ourselves and giving ourselves away in love like we were made to do as human beings, we close in on ourselves. We're more concerned about me than you. We live for ourselves and not others. And we die. You see, the love of God wins us back our humanity. It wins us back our humanity in the image of God, other-centered, like God himself, finding our joy in giving ourselves away, even as God does. 
and nothing will separate you from that love. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you for your glorious work in Christ that has redeemed us from living for ourselves, that has remade us into your image so that in the words of Romans 5, we, when we encounter tribulation now, can have uh, the endurance of continuing in love, even in the midst of suffering, which over time forms a whole character of love that stands up under all conditions to continue to endure and manifest itself because we have hope in your love for us. And therefore, we are made more and more, even in tribulation, and especially because of tribulation, to endure in our love for one another and for a lost world. Oh, Lord, thank you for such a beautiful, beautiful thing that you're doing in our lives, making us like you. Thank you that nothing can stop what you are doing. Amen.